Hello, it's Eric Topo uh, with Ground Truth, and I'm really delighted to have uh, with me Andrew Ng, who is a giant in AI, who I've gotten to know over the years and have the highest regard. So, Andrew, welcome. Hey, thanks, Eric. It's always a pleasure to see you. Yeah, you know, um, we've had some uh, intersections in multiple uh, areas of AI. The one I wanted to start with is that you've had some, you know, direct healthcare um, uh, nurturing. Um, and I, uh, we've had the pleasure of working with Wobot Health, particularly with Allison Darcy, uh, where the AI chatbot has been tested in randomized trials to help people with depression and anxiety. And of course, that was a chatbot in the pre-transformer or pre-LLM era. I wonder if you could just comment about that um, as well as your uh, outlook for AI, current AI models in healthcare. So, um, you know, Alison Dossi is brilliant. It's been such a privilege to work with her over the years. One of the exciting things about AI is it's a general purpose technology. So it's not useful for one thing. And I think um, in healthcare and more broadly across the world, we're seeing many creative people use AI for many different applications. Um, so um, I was in Singapore a couple months ago and I was chatting with um, some folks, uh, Dean Chanyap Sang and one of his doctors, Dr. Niang, about how they're using AI to read EHRs in a hospital in Singapore to try to estimate how long a patient is going to be um, in the hospital because of pneumonia or something. And it was actually triggering helpful conversations where a doctor would say, oh, I think this patient will be in for three, three days. But the AI says, nope, I'm guessing 15 days. And this triggers a conversation where the doctor takes a more careful look. And I thought that was incredible. So all around the world, many innovators everywhere finding very creative ways to apply AI to lots of different problems. I think that's super exciting. Oh, it's extraordinary to me. Um, I think you know uh, Jeff Hinton has thought that this is the most important application of uh, current AI is in the healthcare medical sphere. But you know, I think uh, what the range here uh, is quite extraordinary. And one of the other things that you've been into for all these years with Coursera starting that and uh, all the courses, deep learning, uh, AI, is democratization of knowledge, education and AI. Uh, since this is something like all patients would want to look up uh, on whatever GPT-X um, about their symptoms, different than of course a current Google search, what's your sense about the ability to use a generative AI uh, in this way? I think that um, kind of uh, instead of seeing a doctor also as a large language model, right? What's up with my symptoms? I People are definitely doing it and there have been anecdotes of this, you know, maybe saving a few people's lives even. And I think is, uh, you know, I think in the United States, we're privileged to have uh, um, some would say good, some would say terrible, but certainly better than many other countries' healthcare system. And I, I, I see like, I feel like a lot of the early go-to-market for um, AI-enabled healthcare may end up being in countries or just places with less access to doctors. Um, there are definitely countries where, you know, you can either decide, do you want to go see a, if someone falls sick? You can either send your kid to a doctor or you can have your family eat for the next two weeks, pick one. So it, 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 with, with families made these impossible decisions, um, 
oh, I wish we could give everyone in the world access to a great doctor. And sometimes the alternatives that people face are, are, are pretty, pretty harsh. Um, so there, I think any hope, even the very imperfect hope of an OM, um, I know it sounds terrible. It will hallucinate. It will give bad medical advice sometimes, but is that better than no medical advice? I think that's there's really a, some tough ethical questions are being debated around the world right now. Those hallucinations or confabulations, won't they get better over time? Yes. So, yeah, I think, you know, OM technology is advanced rapidly. They still do hallucinate. They do still mix stuff up. Uh, but it turns out that I think people still have an impression of OM technology from six months ago, but so much has changed in the last six months. So even in the last six months, it's actually much harder now to get an OM, uh, at least many of the public ones offered by large companies, it's much harder now compared to six months ago to get it to give you deliberately harmful advice. Or if you ask it for detailed instructions on you know, how to commit a crime, Six months ago, it was actually pretty easy, so that was not good. But now it's actually pretty hard. It's not impossible, you know. And I actually ask LMs for strange things all the time just to test them. And yes, sometimes I can get them when I really try to do something inappropriate, but it's actually pretty difficult. But hallucinations is a different thing where um, LMs do mix stuff up, and you definitely don't want that when it comes to medical advice. Um, so it, it'll be an interesting balance, I think, of... Uh, when should we use web search you know, for trust authoritative sources? So if I have a sprained ankle, hey, let's, let me just find a web page on how trust from a trusted medical authority on how to deal with sprained ankle. But there are also a lot of things where there is no one web page that just gives me an answer. And then is, is a, um, an alternative for generating a novel thing that's unique to my situation. In non-healthcare cases, this has clearly been very valuable in just the healthcare, given the criticality of Human health and human life. I think I think people are wrestling with some challenging questions, but hallucinations are slowly going down. Yeah, well, hopefully they'll continue to improve uh, on that. And as you pointed out, the other guardrails so will help. Now that gets me to a little over a month ago. We were at the TED uh, AI program, and you gave the opening talk, which was very inspirational. Um, and you basically challenged the critics of uh, the negativism uh, on AI. Uh, with three uh, basically uh, issues um, about amplifying our worst impulses, taking our jobs and wiping out humanity. Um, and it was very compelling. And I, I hope that that will be posted soon. And of course, we'll link it. But can you give us a skinny of your uh, antidote to the doomerism about AI? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, uh, AI is a very beneficial technology. On average, I think it comes down to, do we think the world is better off or worse off with more intelligence in it, be it human intelligence or artificial intelligence? And yes, intelligence can be used for nefarious purposes, and it has been in history. I think a lot of humanity has progressed through humans getting smarter and better trained and more educated. And so I think on average, the world is better off with more intelligence in it. Um, and is, as, as for AI wiping out humanity, I just don't get it. You know, I've spoken with some of the people with this concern, but their arguments for how AI could wipe out humanity are so vague that they boil down to it could happen. And I can't prove it won't happen any more than I can prove a negative like that. I can't prove that radio waves being emitted from Earth won't cause aliens to find us and space aliens to, to, to wipe us out. But I'm not very alarmed about space aliens. Maybe I should be. I don't know. Um, and I find that the harms, um, there, there are real harms 
that are being created by the alarmist um, uh, narrative on AI. You know, one, one thing that was quite sad was chatting with, um, uh, there, there are now high school students that are reluctant to enter AI because they heard it could lead to human extinction and they don't want any of that. And, and that's just tragic that we're causing high school students to make a decision that's bad for themselves and bad for humanity because of really unmerited alarms about, about human extinction. Yeah, no, no question about that. You had, a, I think, a very important quote is AI is not the problem, it's the solution uh, during that. And I think that gets us to the recent flap, if you will, with open AI uh, that's happened in recent days, whereby it appears to be uh, the uh, same tension between the uh, techno optimists, like like you and I, I would say, versus the effective altruism camp, uh, and I wonder uh, what your thoughts are regarding. Uh, obviously, we don't know all the inside dynamics of this, uh, with probably the most publicized interactions in AI that I can remember in terms of its intensity, and it's not over yet. But what, what were your thoughts about as this has been unfolding, which is, of course, still in process? Yeah, honestly, a lot of my thoughts have been with the, all the um, employees of OpenAI. These are hundreds of hardworking, well-meaning people that want to build tech, make it available to others, make the world better off. And then out of the blue, overnight, you know, their jobs, livelihoods, and their um, levers to make a very positive impact to the world to, to the to the world was disrupted for reasons that seem vague and at least uh from the silence of the board i'm not aware of any good reasons for really all these wonderful people's work and and then livelihoods and and and, and being disrupted so i feel sad um that that mm. happened that just happened mm. to deserve um and then i feel like uh you know open ai has is not and, and it's not perfect. No organization in the world is, but frankly, they've really moved AI forward. And I think uh, a lot of people have benefited from from the work of OpenAI. And I think the disruption to that as well um, is also quite tragic. And it uh, and and this may be we'll we'll see if this turns out to be one of the most dramatic impacts of um, unwarranted. Uh, doomsday narratives causing a lot of harm to a lot of people, uh, but we'll 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 see what continues to emerge of the situation. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole concept of AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence, and how you know the it, it gets down to this fundamental assertion that we're at AGI, the digital brain, or we're approximating, or you know, the, the whole idea that um, the machine understanding is at unprecedented levels. I, I wonder your thoughts, because obviously there still is the, the, the camp that says this is uh, a stochastic parrot. It's all anything that suggests understanding is, uh, is basically because of pre-training or, or other matters and, you know, to try to uh, assign any real uh, intelligence that's at the level of human, even for a particular task, no less um, uh, beyond human, is unfounded. What, what is your sense about this, this tension and this ongoing debate, which seem to be part of the open AI board uh, issues? So, 
Um, not sure what was happening at the OpenAI board, but the most widely accepted definition of AGI is AI that could do any intellectual task that the human can. And I do see many companies redefining AGI to be other definitions. So for the original definition, I think we're decades away. We're very clearly not there, but many companies have, you know, let's say alternative definitions. And yeah, if you have an alternative definition, maybe we're there already. One of my economist friends looked at one of the alternative definitions. Um, he said, well, for that definition, I think we got AGI 30 years ago. So, uh, <laughs> and, and and, and looking on the more positive side, maybe, and I think, you know, one of the signs that the companies reach AGI, frankly, would be if they're a rational economic player, they should maybe let go all of their employees that do mainly intellectual work. So until that happens, I, I, I just don't, uh, um, uh, which, not, not, not to joke about it because that would be a serious thing, but I think we're still many decades away from that original definition of AGI. But on the more positive side, you know, um, in healthcare and other sectors, I feel like there's a recipe for using AI that that I find fruitful and exciting, which is um, it turns out that jobs are made out of tasks, um, and I think of AI as automating tasks rather than jobs. So, you know, a few years ago, um, Jeff Hinton had made some strong statements about AI replacing radiologists. I think those predictions have really not, you know, come true today. Um, uh, uh, but but it turns out, as you know, Eric, I I, I I enjoy your book, which is very thoughtful about AI as well. Um, and as you know, I think uh, if you look at, say, the job of radiologists, they do many, many different things, one of which is read x-rays, but they also do patient intakes, uh, you know, mentor younger patients, operate x-ray machine. Uh, and I think that when you, I find that when we look at the healthcare sector or other sectors and look at what people are doing, break jobs down into tasks, then usually, you know, there, there, there can often be a subset of tasks that's amenable to AI automation. And that recipe is helping a lot of businesses um, create value. And, and also, in some, in, in some cases, make healthcare better. So I'm actually excited. And, and because healthcare has so many people doing such a diverse range of tasks, I would love to see more organizations do this type of analysis. Um, and... The interesting thing about that is, you know, we can often automate, I'm going to make up a number, you know, 20% or 30% or whatever of a lot of different jobs tasks. So one, there's a strong sign we're far from AGI because we can't automate 100% of the intellectual tasks. But second, many people's jobs are safe because when we automate 20% of someone's job, you know, they can focus on the other 80% and maybe even be more productivity and causes a marginal value of labor and therefore maybe even salaries that go up rather than down. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, so actually uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, a few, few weeks ago, released a new course on Coursera, um, Generative AI for Everyone, where I go deep, deeper into this recipe for finding opportunities. But I'm really excited about work with partners to go find these opportunities and go build to them. Yeah, I commend you for that because you have been for your career um, democratizing the knowledge of AI and this is so important. And that that new course is just one more example. Everyone could benefit from it. Getting back to your earlier point, just because in the clinician doctor world, the burdensome task of data clerk function of having to be a slave to keyboards and entering the visits and then all the post visit things 
now, of course, uh, we're seeing how synthetic notes and all this can be driven through an automated note that is not involving any uh, keyboard work. And so just as you say, that comprises maybe 20, 30 percent of a typical doctor's day, if not more. And the fact is that that change could then bring together the, the, the patient and doctor again, which has been a relationship that suffered because of electronic records and all of the um, data clerk functions. That's just a really, I think, a great example of what you just uh, pointed out. I love um, Andrew's letters, which you publish, uh, which, as you mentioned, one of your recent posts was about the generative AI for everyone. Um, and in those, you recently addressed loneliness, which is, as you know, associated with all sorts of bad health outcomes. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about how AI could help loneliness. Yeah, so this is a fascinating um, uh, case study where, uh, so AI fund, we had wanted to do something on AI and relationships, kind of romantic relationships. Um, and I'm an AI guy. I feel like, what do I know about romance? And <laughs> if you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. She will confirm I know nothing about romance. Um, but we're privileged to partner with the former CEO of Tinder, Renata Nyborg, who uh, knows about relationships in a very systematic way, far more than anyone I know. And so working with her with a deep expertise about relationships, and she, it turns out she actually knows a lot about AI too. Uh, but then my team's uh, knowledge about AI, we're able to build something very unique that she launched, um, called, that, that she announced called Mino. And um, I've been playing around with it on my phone. Uh, mm. and, and it's actually a remarkably interesting, remarkably good, I think, um, relationship mentor. Frankly, I wish I had Mino, you know, back when I was single to have asked my dumb, you know, questions to. Uh, oh. And I'm excited that maybe AI, uh, I feel like tech maybe has contributed to, to, to loneliness. I know the data is mixed. That social media contributes to social isolation. I know there are different opinions of different types of data. But this is one case where hopefully AI can clearly not be the problem, but be part of the solution to help people gain the skills to, to, to build better relationships. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Here again, the counterintuitive idea that technology could enhance the human human bonds, uh, which are all too short, that we want to enhance, of course. Um, you know, you've had an incredible multi-dimensional career. Uh, I, we talked a little bit about your role in education, uh, with the founding of the the uh, massive online courses, um, but also with uh, with Baidu and Google, uh, and then in, of course at Stanford, you've seen the academic side. You've seen the, the leading tech titan side, the entrepreneurial side with, you know, with the various ventures of trying to get behind companies that have promise. You have the whole package of experience and portfolio. H how do you use that now going forward? You're still so young and the, and the field is so exciting. Where do you try to just cover all the bases or do you see yourself, you know, uh, changing gears in some way? Because you have had a foot in, in every aspect. Oh, I really like what I do. Um, I think these days I spend a lot of time, you know, AI Fund uh, builds new companies using AI um, and, and deeplearning.ai is an educational arm. And one of the companies that AI Fund has helped incubate does computer vision work, landing AI. We actually have a lot of healthcare 
uses as well. Uh, using mm -hmm. But I, and I feel like um, uh, with the recent advances in AI at the technology layer, uh, things like large language models, like I, I feel like a lot of the work that lies ahead of the entire field is to build applications on top of that. In fact, a lot of the um, media buzz has been on the technology layer, and this happens every time there's technology change. You know, when when the iPhone came out, when we shifted the cloud, it's interesting for the media to talk about the technology. But it turns out the only way for the technology supplies to be successful is if the application builders are even more successful because they've got to generate enough revenue to pay the technology suppliers. So I've been um, spending a lot of my time thinking about the application layer uh, and mm. how to help either myself or support others to build more applications. And the annoying and exciting thing about AI is as a general purpose technology, there's just so much to do. There's so many applications to build. It's kind of like, what is electricity good for? Or what is the cloud good for? It's just so many different things. So it, it's going to take us, frankly, more than more longer than we wish, uh, but it will be exciting and, and, and meaningful work to go to all the corners of healthcare and all the corners of education and finance and you know industrial uh, 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 and go find these applications and go build them. Well, you know, I mean, you have a, such a broad and diverse experience uh, and you pr predicted much of this. I mean, you knew somehow or other that when the, the graphic processing unit would go from, you know, uh, a very rare, low number to tens of thousands of them, what might happen? And you you were there, I think, uh, before perhaps anyone else. Um, one of the things, of course, that this whole field now gets to us to is potential tech dominance. And by what I mean there is that you've got a limited number of companies like Microsoft and Google and Meta and uh, maybe in, you know Inflection AI and a few others that have capabilities of 30,000, 40,000, whatever number of GPUs. And then you have academic centers like your um, adjunct appointment at Stanford, which maybe has a few hundred or here at Scripps Research that has you know 150, and so we have we don't have the computing power to do base models. And what what can we do? How do you see the struggle between the 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 entities that have what appears to be you know almost if you will if it's not unlimited it's massive computing power versus academics that want to advance the field? Um, they have different interests, of course, um, but they don't have that power base, where, where is this headed? Yeah, so I think the biggest danger to that um, concentration is um, regulatory capture. So I've been quite, I've been quite alarmed over um, moves that various entities, uh, some companies, but also governments here in the US and in Europe, uh, especially US and Europe, less so other places, um, have been contemplating regulation that I think places a very high regulatory compliance burden um, that big tech companies have the capacity to satisfy, but that smaller players will not have the capacity to satisfy. And so I think, uh, and, and, and in particular, you know, the definitely companies would rather not have the computer open source. When you take a, a smaller size, say 7 billion parameter model and fine tune it for specific tasks, it works remarkably well for many specific tasks. Um, so for a lot of applications, you don't need a giant model. And you, know, you can and actually, I routinely run a seven or 13 billion parameter model 
on my laptop, uh, more inference than, than fine-tuning, but it's within the realm of what a lot of players can do. But if uh, inconvenient laws are passed, and they've certainly been proposed in Europe under the EU AI Act, um, and also the uh, White House executive order, um, if we, you know, I think we've taken some dangerous steps to what um, putting in place very burdensome compliance requirements that would make it very difficult for small startups and potentially very difficult for less smaller organizations to even release open source software. Open source software has been one of the most important building blocks for everyone in tech. I mean, if you use a computer or a smartphone, that was built because of open, that's built on top of open source software, right? TCP IP, you know, internet, how just how the internet works. A lot of that is built on top of open source software. So regulations that hamper um, people just wanting to release open source, that would that would be very destructive for innovation. Right, you know, that's uh, right in um, keeping with what you've, what we've been talking about with the, the doomsday you know, prophecies and the regulations and things that would slow up things, uh, the the whole progress in the field, which you know you, we we are obviously in touch with the both sides and the tension there, but um, overregulation, the potential uh, hazards of that are are not perhaps adequately emphasized. Um, and another one of your letters, which you just got to there, was about um, AI at the edge. Um, and the fact that we can move towards, um, you know, in contrast to the, the centralized computing power at a limited number of entities, there's, as you, I think, just we're getting at, there's the increasing potential for being able to do things on a phone or a laptop. Can you comment about that? Yeah, I think I, I feel like I'm going. I feel like I'm going against many trends. It, it sounds like I'm. You're know, advocating a very weird direction, but I'm bullish about AI the age. Um, I feel like, you know, if I want to do grammar checking using a large language model, why do I need to send all my data to 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 a cloud provider when a small language model can do it just fine on my laptop? Or um uh, one of my collaborators um uh, at Stanford was training a uh, uh large language model um in order to do electronic health records. Uh, and so um, at Stanford, uh, this is actually work done by Yixing, one of the Yixing Wang, one of the PhD students I've been working with. Um, uh, but so Yixing uh, wound up uh, fine-tuning a large language model um, at Stanford so that he could, um, you know, run inference over there uh, and not and 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 not have to ship right EHR and not have to ship private medical records um, to a cloud provider. And so I think, uh, uh, so, so so I think that that was an important thing uh, to to and and if open source work were shut down, I think someone like you seem, um, you know, would have had a much harder time uh, doing this type of work. No, I, I totally follow you. The point there. Now, uh, the last thing I wanted to get to was um, a multimodal AI in healthcare. Um, when we spoke years ago, when I was working on the deep medicine book, um, multimodal AI wasn't really possible. And um, the idea was uh, someday we'll have the models to do it. The idea here is that each each of us has all these layers of data, our various electronic health records, our genome, our gut microbiome, uh, our sensors and 
environmental data, social determinants of health, our immunome, you know, it just goes on and on, right? And there's also the corpus of medical literature. So right now, no one has really done multimodal. They've done like bimodal AI in healthcare, where they took the electronic health records and the genome, where usually it's the electronic health records and the scan, medical scan. No one has done more than a couple of layers yet. Uh, and the question I have is, um, it seems like that's imminently going to be accomplished. And then let's then get to, will there will be will there be a virtual health coach? So unlike these virtual coaches like Wolbot and the diabetes coaches and the hypertension coaches, will we ultimately have with multimodal AI, you're kind of, forecast on that, the ability to have feedback to any given individual to promote their health, to prevent conditions that they might be at risk for, for having later in life or help managing, you know, all their conditions that they actually are, have already um, um, uh, been declared. What's your sense about where we are with multimodal AI? I think there's a lot of work to be done still at Unimodal, a lot of work to be done in text. Landing AI does a lot of work on images and maybe not to talk about Yixing Jiang's work all the time, but just this morning I was chatting, just earlier I was chatting with him about uh, uh, he's trying to train a large uh, transformer on some uh, time series other than text or images. And, and then, you know, kind of a similar collaborator at Stanford, uh, uh, Jeremy Irvin, Jose, kind of poking at the corners of this. But I think a lot of people feel appropriately that there's a lot of work to be done still in unimodal, so I'm cheering that on. But then there's also a lot of work to be done in multimodal, and I, and I see work beyond text and images, um, maybe genome, maybe some of the time series things, maybe some of the EHR-specific things, which maybe is kind of text, but kind of not. I I, I think, uh, you know, I don't know, it was just about a year ago that um, ChatGPT was announced, so who knows, just one more year of progress, who knows where it will be. Yeah, well, we we know there will be continued progress, that's for sure. And hopefully, as we've been discussing, there won't be significant obstacles for that. And hopefully, um, there will be a, a truce between the two camps of the doomerism and the optimism, um, or somehow we're meet in the middle. But uh, Andrew, it's been a delight to get your views on all this. Um, I don't know how the open AI affair will settle out, but it does seem to be um, representative of the times we live in, because uh, at the same TED AI that you and I spoke at, Ilya spoke about uh, AGI, uh, and that was only followed matter by days by you know Sam Altman talking about AGI and how OpenAI was approaching uh, AGI capabilities. And it seems like this is even though, as you said, there's a lot of different definitions. For AGI, the progress that's being made right now uh, is extraordinary, and grappling with the idea that um, that there are certain tasks, at least certain understanding, certain intelligence that um, may be superhuman um, via machines um, is more than provocative. Um, and I know you're you you. Uh, are asked to comment about this all the time. And, you know, it's great because in many respects, you're, you're kind of a expert neutral observer. You're not, you're not in one of these companies that's trying to, to uh, assert that they have sparks of AGI or actual AGI or whatever. Right. Um, so in closing, um, you know, I think we look to you 
as a kind of uh, uh, not just an expert, but one who has had such broad experience in this field and who has predicted so much of its um, progress and warned of uh, the reasons that we would not continue to make that type of extraordinary progress. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, I'll keep reading the Andrew's letters. I hope everybody does. As many people as possible should attend your Generative AI for Everyone course. And uh, thank you for what you've done for the field, Andrew. We're, we're all indebted to you. Uh, thank you, Eric. You're, you're always so gracious. It's always such a pleasure to see you and, and collaborate with you.